Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have no rival and you have no equal. You have no rival and you have no equal. There is no rival in this universe. There is no rival in this cosmos. And there's no equal. Father, those words struck me as we sung. You are the God of immense, enormous, awesome power. You are a God who speaks and a world is brought into order. You are a God who speaks and humanity is born and birthed. Love and children and food and waterfalls, sunsets, beaches, oceans, whales, sharks. You have no rival and you have no equal. In this world, in this space and in this time, we can put rivals and equals. We can put things and stuff and substances and experiences and wealth, feeling of importance. We put those things ahead and before you. Reorient our thinking. Encourage us, rebuke us, and lead us to a place of repentance. Help us to rethink what is substantial, what is real, what is true, what is open and what is honest. And God, as we sit in this building today, as we look at this story, as we look at these men and what they did, and you are with them through all of this experience. Would you remind us, bring us to a point and a place so that we know deep in our bones, deep in our soul, that no matter where we go, that no matter what happens, that no matter what we experience, you are with us. And you have no rival, and you have no equal. And you love us, and you welcome us into your family, into your circle. Help us to remember the reality of our situation, and not allow these things that cloud us to take up so much room. We pray all of these things in the good, godly, resurrected, and ascended name of Jesus. And all God's people said... So Daniel chapter 3, we began chapter 1 and chapter 2, and last week we, um, we spent a bit of time here, didn't we, on the ski jump, and the ski jump was a, a representation of where Daniel was. He'd been taken from his home, he'd been taken from his culture, from his um, everything that was normal for him, and he's brought into Babylon, and this was a process of breaking down the the Israelite in him, breaking down the culture of him and embedding and imparting through a long and slow process of luxury and delicacy and normality, Babylonian principles and understandings and ideas. And Daniel's brought into the king's very table and he was able to eat the king's food, drink the king's wine, enjoy the king's delicacies. 
And this process would slowly over time break him down. Daniel knew that if he began that process, then he would be like the skier on the ski jump. Once he has begun, the momentum would grab him and he would not be able to stop. Daniel knew that his role in this journey, part of his life, was to be a presence of God and for God within the Babylonian Empire. And so Daniel knew that he had to remain sharp and present and aware. And so what Daniel did was he said to the king, we do not want to eat from your table. We will just eat fruit and vegetables. We won't drink your good wine. We'll just drink water. And me and my friends will do that. And so the king allowed them eventually to do that. And so Daniel is razor sharp. He's in this constant state of fast, if you like, so that he can remain present. That sets up the story. And we have to remember all the time that this is a book written for and to a people that are in exile. So they are 70 years in exile. And in this 70 years, sort of that's two, three generations time. The whole point is that the, the culture of Israel is dissolved away and then the people end up going back to their land but they go back to their land two three generations later with Babylonian culture and with Babylonian principles and with Babylonian thinking and then Israel becomes a mini Babylon and that's the point that's how they kind of indoctrinated so that their empire could spread all the way throughout the then known world and this is a book that says we cannot forget who we are. We cannot allow this eroding of our culture and eroding of our God to take place. And so that's what the book of Daniel is. We always have to keep that front and center as we read. So Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image out of gold. And we read, we read before that it was a big image. It was a, an enormous thing. Remember the date and the time and the place? To build something so big would have been an epic undertaking. Babylon was a smart place. It was an intelligent place. There's a lot of smart people there. But remember from, from chapter 2 of Daniel, we saw the king had this dream, didn't he? And in this dream, he, he, there was this big statue. And the, the head of the statue was made out of gold. And who did the head represent? Nebuchadnezzar. And he couldn't get over that part. He really liked that part. Do you remember? He liked that part about the gold head and he was the head and he was the gold. So next chapter on, he's now there and he's built for himself this enormous gold image, this enormous gold statue. So that's the way it's often pictured, but this is more what it looked like. It was this big, long pole sort of thing, column with an image on the top and it was all made out of gold and it works a lot like and sounds a lot like the image that he dreamed the story before. Sort of a, a lot of the scholars all kind of say what he's trying to do, what they think he's trying to do, is bring into place this idea of him being this golden head. And so he creates this image and he puts this image into play so that people can worship it, meaning him, because he's had this revelation, in inverted commas, that he's going to be this enormous emperor. And so he's now put feet and hands and legs on that and he's now put in place this this sort of everyone has to worship and rule him. So it tells us a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar and a little bit about his scenario. But we have a look 
uh, about King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's a substantial and important man. So this here is a, a coin, a representation of a coin that they found, um, and coins were a big way and a significant way for emperors and rulers to kind of get their face and their image around. Remember, this is not a time of Facebook and, and internet and photos and all that sort of stuff. This is a time when currency, when coins were distributed throughout the empire. And so his head, his face was on the coin and people would use them and they would remember that he's the king. This second image here, this is a, um, a tablet that was found with a picture of what inscribed a carved picture of Nebuchadnezzar II on there. And this is just a picture that sort of people generally tend to represent what they think that he looked like. But he was a brilliant king and he, he ruled Babylon, the empire of Babylon, for some 43 years. That's a long time in a, in, a, in a date and a time where there's no antibiotics and all that sort of stuff. He ruled for a long time. He was by far Babylon's greatest and most prolific emperor, most prolific king. He was a wonderful military tactician and they've started to excavate the old Babylonian site and they've found an area that's around 2,000 acres. That was kind of like the main city. And they've found Nebuchadnezzar II's palace. And in his palace and around his palace, what they've discovered is that he had built and made this public museum. They think that it's the first one ever. And so what he did was when he went and conquered these foreign worlds, he would bring back things and bring them back and put them in this museum. And so then his people could come in and say, wow, here's this thing from this part of the world. Remember, nobody had gone, nobody went very far. No one had anything, that, even libraries weren't that popular. So he has created this, uh, this space for his people to come and see how broad and how big the empire of Babylon was. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. He was a builder. He was a tactician. Uh, he was very, very ruthless as well. And Babylon was a place where kind of science and technology was encouraged. It was a place where people flourished. But Nebuchadnezzar was a brutal and a ruthless and a harsh man as well. He wanted to be worshipped. He desperately, desperately wanted to be worshipped. What we do learn is that the king sets in place this statue and this statue sets in place a ritual and a routine. And what we do learn is that empires tell you who and what to worship. Empires tell you who and what to worship. And we might think that we live in a world where we're not under any empire rule or anything like that at the moment. But I would suggest to you that we are well and truly in an empire and that our empire is well and truly telling us what it is that we should and shouldn't be doing. It's just very subliminal for us. I heard an interview uh, at Christmas time with our Prime Minister Scott Morrison, our new Prime Minister. Um, and he said at Christmas time, they were talking about Christmas and what should we do at Christmas and what's really important at Christmas. And Scott Morrison said, please go to the shops and buy things. What do we need to do for Christmas, Prime Minister Scott Morrison? Get down to the shops and buy presents. When 9-11 happened and George Bush sort of days or even hours after 9-11 happened and George Bush was addressing the country, he says this to the American people. We do not want this terrorist attack to change the way we live. Go to the supermarkets. Book that holiday to Disneyland. Go and buy that television set. They were the words that he used straight after 9-11. We are surrounded by an empire. 
And our empire is consumerism. Our empire is telling us constantly that the most important thing we can do is keep the economy going. And we will happily, unknowingly but happily, allow terrible things to happen to people in order for our economy to keep on going. In order for our economy to remain strong and in order for us and our style of living to remain as it is. Uncomfortable, yes? I'm sure that if most of us went for a trip to Bangladesh and walked into the sweatshops in Bangladesh and saw our t-shirts being made and saw why it is that they're 5 or $10 cheaper than the ones from other places, I wonder how many of us would continue to buy those t-shirts. I wonder if we saw how our electronics were made and the conditions that the people that make them live in if we would continue to happily buy them because that one's $50 cheaper. It's very uncomfortable. It's incredibly uncomfortable. But it is part of the empire that we live in. And if we don't know the water we're swimming in, we cannot do what Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego did by standing up against it. Amen? Let's keep going with our story. Daniel chapter 3 verse 12. But, but there are some Jews, so he's put in place this decree of worship. Worship this image, worship this representation of me and my divinity. And then there were those who Daniel had rescued in his saving of them all in chapter 2, these people now start to see that these Jewish guys have pride of place. They have influence and authority and power. So the astrologers and the other people start to say, we don't want them in a position of power and authority. We want that place. So then they begin to use the king's vanity against him. But there are some Jews whom you have set over affairs in the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Daniel saved them. They're now jealous. And so they're setting out to make sure that all these Jewish guys, because I think they know there's some sort of power, there's some sort of authority there, there's something special about them. Let's get rid of them. Let's Let's sort them out so that they're no longer going to be within our realm. And so they're set up. And we see the king, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Remember they're talking to the emperor of the then known world. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold or worship the image of gold that you have set up. This is touted as one of the most famous passages in Scripture because these guys are speaking to the king. They are razor sharp and focused. This is the result of this more fasting lifestyle. This is the result of us not being dulled down by the delicacies of our culture. Because in a place where they are the most vulnerable, their life is literally in danger and on the line, on the line, they have an assurance of the presence of God that is unbelievable they have an assurance that if they do get killed and it's terrible they know that even if that is the case God will be with us God will look after us God will love us God will rescue us would you like that level of assurity in your life 
Would you like to live with this sense of peace, with this sense of knowing that no matter what happens, God has got me in his hand? You have no rival and you have no equal. These men knew that was true. These men knew that it was true. I get in a crisis, I get in a struggle, and I'm all of a sudden going, what am I going to do? What's going to happen? Who's going to, how am I going to, These guys get into a crisis and they know, even if we die, God has got us. That's what this fasting style or fasting lifestyle means. It doesn't mean we go off and live some crazy life, but it means that we we are concise and we are present to God's presence in this world. He has no rival and he has no equal. This allows them to speak truth to power. This allows them to speak to the the king. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and his attitude towards them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So we've got the king's strength, strongest soldiers. I'm going to heat the things seven times hotter. You can't heat the furnace seven times hotter. Seven in the Old Testament is this number of perfection in Scripture. So it's this number of completeness, absoluteness. So the earth was made seven days. So the the king has his absolute power and he's using his strongest guys, bind them up and chuck them in the fire. This is, you know, this is a a horrendous thing. And these guys don't seem to be all that fussed about that. They seem to know that God is with them. The question is, when you say no to power, what do you get? When you say no to power, what do you get? You get this rage, don't you? You get Nebuchadnezzar. He is angry and furious. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar cares too much about the worship and the gods of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. I think what he cares far more about is the fact that they said no. And when they said no, what it said to him and his power was that his power was fleeting. And he was working very, very hard to make sure that his power was all-encompassing. And these three guys stand there and say, nah. No, kill us, but we don't believe you are who you say you are. And so he is furious and angry and rageful. Speaking truth to power tends to cost us. Speaking truth to power can cost us ultimately. There might be a scenario or a setting within your work where you know something is wrong, where you know something isn't right. And to speak truth to that power will cost you. Israel are a people in exile. They are a people who are out of their home. They are a people who are out of their culture. They are a people who are living in this country, living in this place by the grace of this new emperor. And this book reminds them who they are and who their God is. This book is set up to remind them when you're in a situation where you feel that all is lost, when you're in a situation where it feels like you are going to lose yourself, this is who God is. And this is what God does, told through the story of these three men. This story for us 
is to remind you who you are and to remind you who your God is. Because Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's story is one of them speaking truth to power, them speaking truth to the ultimate power of their time. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a call and that call is to look after the widow, the orphan and the refugee. That's what scripture tells us again and again and again and again. The people of God, the kingdom of God is here to advocate for those who are most vulnerable within our community. When you start to stand up and advocate for the most vulnerable in your community, as long as it doesn't affect anyone's life, people are happy for you to do that. But once you start to step into the realms and spheres where your advocacy starts to affect the comfortableness of the people around you, you will begin to feel the flames. Amen? You will begin to feel the heat of the furnaces. And you will need to know who you are. And more importantly, you will need to know who your God is. And I want to encourage you, please don't take that as some right to go out and be obnoxious Christians who go around telling people they're all going to hell and burning and all that sort of stuff. That is not, I'm not saying that that's the right thing for you to do. Please hear me. But step into situations and love people. Do it with generosity. Do it with self-sacrifice. Step in and be a presence of morality in a respectful manner in your workplace. Step in and be someone who doesn't tell the rude jokes or share the dirty emails and watch people go, hang on a minute, what's going on? You don't even need to have the big speech about how God hates you and he's going to burn you. All you need to do is not pass that stuff on or not be that person who carries on the gossip in the workplace and people will start to notice that you're different. Amen? You will start to feel the flames. Who knows what I'm talking about? In your family, if you are the person who is stepping in and engaging where everyone else is running out, if you are the person who's stepping in when someone's acting inappropriately and speaking truth to that situation, you will start to feel the flames. Amen? If you are able to speak to people in power or people in authority respectfully uh, about the the decisions of our nation, about our budget and all that sorts of stuff, um, you will start to feel the flames. And this is exactly what this book is here to tell us. Because even though these men did what they did, they ended up in the fire. They weren't in there alone. They were not in the fire by themselves. God was with them and miraculously rescued and saved them and allowed them to carry on their work and their ministry. Now, there are plenty of people, sadly, who have advocated for others and have advocated for God in such a way and ended up not being rescued or saved by God. So this is not a story to say, if you stand up for the right thing or if you advocate for God, then you will be saved. These men were saved. But the the idea is that what they experienced is what we can experience. So when we stand up to power and we speak truth to power, Be assured that in the flames and in the heat, we are not alone and we are not by ourselves. So the encouragement is, even if you are in exile, even if you are away from where you want to be and where you need to be, just know that the call for us is to bring the kingdom, is to be God's people wherever we find ourselves. And our role and our job is to speak truth to power in a loving and respectful way. In that space and in that place, we encounter and we meet Father, Son and Spirit. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we are grateful to be here. We listen to these stories and, and I heard these stories in Sunday school and I love them. I love the drama of them, the excitement of them. I loved what they represented. I look at them now as an adult with a family and they're much more political stories. They're stories of much greater risk. These men gave up everything. They risked everything so that they could speak your truth to power. And we see when Nebuchadnezzar encounters that yet again, he has this miraculous conversion-like experience where he acknowledges Father, Son and Spirit as the ultimate. We see next story and next story, we see he just falls back again. We see he falls away again. But Lord, our role and our place is to continually speak truth to power wherever we see it, in the small roles and in big roles, to bring your kingdom in every scenario and in every setting. That's our call. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to empower us and strengthen us and give us the ability to do that well uh, at all times. We pray these things in Jesus' name. All of God's people said...